How do we prevent the financial exploitation of incarcerated people? This author's answer is abolition. Welcome to the California Law Review Podcast. Our goal is to provide an accessible and thought-provoking overview of the scholarship we publish. Today, we will be discussing a piece by Sean Kolke titled People Over Profit, The Case for Abolishing the Prison Financial System. This is a student note published in Issue 1 of Volume 110 in February 2022. Sean, thank you so much for sitting down to talk with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So what is the problem with prison finance? What's going on that needs to be changed? Um, you know, my my notes specifically focused on, you know, two particular practices that, um, you know, really illustrate just the complete lack of care that we have for incarcerated individuals. Um, so the first of them is, um, you know, exploitative prison transfer fees. Uh, so basically, uh, if you're an incarcerated person, you don't have access to cash uh, and you don't have your own bank account. Instead, you have uh, what's called a trust account or an inmate trust account. Uh, and that is controlled entirely by um, either the prison itself or it, as is becoming increasingly common by some you know, private entity that's been contracted to control prison finance. And that account is funded in part by uh, your wage if you work while you're incarcerated, though that is, you know, as others I'm sure could do a much better job uh, speaking to a, a very meager wage and very exploitative wage. Um, but that's just not enough, quite frankly. I mean, for, uh, you know, the the financial obligations that incarcerated folks have, which you know, now includes sometimes buying their own clothing, buying uh, food to supplement their diet. I mean, this is, you know, very real financial obligations that they have. They have to get money transfers from uh, from their family, from their friends. Uh, and in order to do that, they now have sort of this added layer of exploitation, which is, uh, you know, these hyper aggressive transfer fees. So just to give you like a, an example of what that might look like, you know, if if I'm hypothetically, you know, wanting to transfer money to a person who's incarcerated, um, you know, I would have to spend as much as $2 just transfer, uh, you know, less than 30 into their account. Um, but that that price that that's charged is it's completely made up. It's arbitrary. It doesn't reflect the actual cost that's incurred to deposit money into uh, into a trust account. And, and we know that because uh, if you look at the way that the fees are structured, right, if I wanted to send um, let's say $75, you know, I could, I could send, you know, two transfers of 30 and one transfer of 15. That's going to cost me about $6. Um, or if I want to actually just send $75, then the fee for that could be as high as eight or nine, right? So it's actually cheaper to send smaller transfers than it is to send one big one, right? This makes absolutely no sense. And that's just examples from one state. I mean, these fees, can vary wildly from, you know, institution to institution, from state to state. They're set by private institutions, by private companies that have, you know, been entrusted with, uh, with individuals' finances. And, uh, they, they certainly, um, you know, take advantage of them and their communities. It sounds like these transfer fees can add up to quite a lot of money, even if it doesn't seem like much for a single transfer. I imagine this is especially true for families and loved ones who are already struggling financially. 
So what is the impact of these costs? Yeah. So, the, you know, this is the real cost of, of privatizing prison, prison finances is you wind up with a situation where we have now, you know, over incarcerated uh, our our communities, specifically communities of color and, and especially black communities. And now we are instead of, you know, adjusting our budgets to reflect that we are passing the costs of incarceration itself onto those very same communities that we already over police that we already over incarcerate. And so in practice, what that looks like is, you know, individuals who want to send money to their loved ones are now forced to make sacrifices themselves, uh, you know, on the outside, um, you know, choosing between their own financial priorities and the the livelihoods and the, you know, the, the life of their loved one who is incarcerated. And, you know, that 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 has real costs. You know, these are real people who are, you know, being exploited by private companies. Uh, and, you know, that does real damage, uh, especially at moments that I think are especially critical for um, folks who are trying to, you know, rebuild their lives after their, you know, entanglement with the criminal legal system. So it's, um, it's really it, it, it is kicking people while they're down. And that's something that, you know, I just, I, it enrages me to, to read it. Uh, but at the same time, I can't even imagine what it's like to have to go through that. Um, so, you know, I think we have an obligation to do something about that. So we've discussed the first practice, exploitative prison transfer fees. What is the second practice that your note focuses on? If a person is released and they have funds remaining in their account, instead of being given that money in cash or in a check, uh, it's becoming increasingly common for them to be given a prepaid debit card that has, uh, you know, uh, incredibly exploitative fees attached to it. Um, you know, that could be, you know, 50 cents just for checking your balance or a dollar for, you know, any transaction, just buying something at the store. If you want to cancel the card, that can cost as much as $30. And, you know, just having the card active, um, you know, that can cost as much as $10 a month. And these are fees that, that, you know, lots of formerly incarcerated folks are not aware of when they receive the cards. And so you wind up with situations where, you know, a person, uh, you know, hypothetically could be released from uh, an institution with $150 in their bank account. Uh, and, you know, as they leave, they're given this card, they're only going to be able to spend maybe half of that if they're not incredibly cognizant of how they're spending their money and very careful uh, not to spend it, um, you know, in, in, in increments that are going to expose them to these really exploitative fees. So in your note, and also in our conversation today, um, you've been mentioning how private companies have a huge role in prisons, even in public prisons, and their influence is growing. Can you talk a little bit about why private interests have become so huge in this area? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's because that's sort of what private interests do, you know, I mean, that that's kind of the blueprint for, uh, you know, not certainly not just uh, incarceration, um, and, and the industry that surrounds that, uh, I think you see it in, in basically any industry you can name. I mean, it, it is capitalism. It's what we do. We, uh, we find ways to grow and, and expand our power. And that's just what's happening here in, in the context of, uh, of incarceration. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of attention that's uh, spent talking about the fully private prison, but 
you know, individual prisons are privatized to varying degrees all over the place, um, whether that's commissaries, telecoms, or, you know, prison finance. And what does it mean to be privatized? So privatization means, uh, you know, you are taking a, a certain aspect of uh, an institution's functioning, in this case, a prison. And instead of letting that be the responsibility of the public, it becomes the responsibility of uh, a third party corporation whose uh, motivation is profit. In your note, you name prison abolition as the solution. What is prison abolition? It's the idea that the solution to the mass incarceration problem that we have, the solution to the prison industrial complex is not to try to, you know, tweak small parts of the system to make it more palatable. Um, it's to get rid of it entirely. It's to imagine a world in which we don't lock people up um, because, quite frankly, that's just not necessary. I mean, we've become so addicted to this idea that, you know, prisons are a necessary evil, that, you know, there's something that we we have to tolerate, but, you know, keep under control so that they don't do anything that's that's too bad, you know. But a prison abolition starts from the sort of foundational view that any amount of incarceration is too much and that we should be, you know, trying to orient our activism uh, towards the ultimate goal of getting rid of prisons. Um, and that's, I mean, it's a hard idea for people to process. I, I think you're seeing that play out, especially in sort of, uh, you know, related debates around defunding the police um, and, and even abolishing the police. Um, it's, it's a reaction that hits a lot of people, um, you know, sort of in the gut in a way that, that makes them uncomfortable. And so, you know, one of the purposes behind this piece is also to just try to explore what that looks like, because it's something that can be really hard to conceptualize when you spend your entire life assuming that these things are necessary, that, that incarceration is necessary. It's difficult to be confronted with the idea that, you know, actually there are alternatives to it. Um, and so, yeah, the, the idea behind this specific part of, of uh, the prison system and, and talking about prison finances, you know, sort of just to, to do the work of articulating what an alternative looks like. I mean, I, I obviously don't have to tell you that, you know, we're not going to get rid of prisons tomorrow, right? There's a, a long road ahead of us before we'll be able to accomplish this mission. So, Part of that is finding individual parts of this system that we can dismantle, uh, you know, on the road towards getting rid of it entirely. So the examples that you've given of money transfer fees and debit release cards show that the current prison financial system is extremely exploitative of incarcerated people and their families. And your note mentions several reformist approaches that could mitigate the harms of this exploitation. What are those potential reforms? So, you know, one of the pathways that, that I explore in the note is, you know, challenging these practices through litigation. There are some ways that you can do that under, you know, state consumer protection laws, um, under the uh, Electronic Fund Transfer Act, uh, you know, but there's not really a, a great fit right now. Uh, and there's also, you know, a lot of, a lot of barriers to that being a really successful strategy long term. You know, I think it's becoming increasingly common to have um, arbitration clauses built into a lot of the um, 
agreements specifically surrounding the the release cards. Uh, and even if you have success in in you know one particular jurisdiction, one of the major challenges with reforming prisons is that they're so widespread. I mean, there's there's prisons that exist at every level of uh, you know of administration from localities to counties to states up to the federal government, and you have to find you know procedural pathways that can alter the law at each of those different levels in order to, you know, generate any sort of durable change. Um, so that work is, is obviously ongoing. I think it's, uh, it's very important, but the, the, you know, the underlying idea behind abolition is, is sort of trying to shine a light on the fact that, you know, we could spend decades trying to, to fight this fight, uh, you know, in the courts and, and find a way to get the, court system and the legal system to recognize that this is an injustice. Um, but that time, you know, is going to translate to a lot of harm being done uh, in the process. And so a similar way is to try to go about it through regulation that runs into a lot of the same problems. You know, there was a rulemaking by the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, I think about six years ago. Uh, there was a lot of um, advocacy to try to get them to sort of curb some of the uh, the more abusive fee schedules. And they did to a certain degree, uh, you know, they, they did increase the disclosure requirements. Uh, so now, you know, you do have to sort of disclose what the fees are when you give a release card to folks, but uh, they, they definitely stopped short of, um, you know, completely outlawing um, or banning that practice. And Again, even if you do that, right, even if the CFPB was to act in that way, you know, that might not necessarily affect every level of the prison system. Um, and, you know, so again, this is a, a difficult issue to address at, at each level. A similar, you know, sort of problem arose um, in the context of, of prison telecommunications. So this is another area of, um, of the prison system that's, that's heavily privatized. You know, it's, it's quite common to see a third party vendor. Um, I think Securus is one of the biggest ones. Um, JPay is, is now another company that's sort of getting into that market. Um, they just charge exponential rates for, for basic phone calls or contacts. I mean, as much as a dollar to send an email, a dollar a minute to talk to a family member, uh, and the FCC sort of did step in and, and acted and sort of outlawed some of those uh, really, truly excessive um, fee structures. But it didn't affect every single, uh, you know, prison and jail out there. I mean, you still see, um, you know, in certain counties or in certain states where that uh, where the FCC just doesn't have jurisdiction, um, that that still is a problem. Um, and then sort of a. A third pathway that I, I explored was, you know, just increasing access to banking was, you know, trying to find uh, ways to educate incarcerated folks about, uh, you know, the financial tools that have sort of just become a necessity in, you know, today's world to, um, you know, to have a sense of financial security. Uh, and, you know, again, like that, that is a, it's an idea that I think is very good in theory, but you know, in implementation, what it ultimately does is is kind of serve as a distraction from what should be, in my view, the ultimate goal of, you know, getting rid of these truly harmful practices entirely. I mean, we could we could put a band-aid on it, 
Um, or we could recognize that the solution is to just not put people in jail in the first place. Um, and, you know, and, and if you read the note, you'll also see there's, you know, I, I think a very limited set of data from which to draw any conclusions about whether banking access really is, uh, you know, going to be a, um, a successful cure for, for some of these problems. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the overarching point that I think I, I really tried to make in writing this was that, you know, it, it's not to take away from the people who are doing this work, right? Because it, it is coming from a place of, you know, wanting to reduce the harm that the prison financial system or, or that prisons generally cause, right? And that is a good thing. But it's also important, I think, to orient our work around the larger goal of of what it is we're trying to do, right? I, I talked a little bit earlier about the idea that, you know, prisons are sort of a necessary evil. I think that's how a lot of people really view incarceration as something that is sort of taken for granted that we have to have it. But there are people who are willing to devote their lives and devote their time to trying to limit it in such a way that they can sort of sleep at night knowing that it's not, uh, you know, as bad as it could be, right? And so we could spend all the time in the world trying to address problems from that angle. But you know, what I argue for is sort of changing that frame of reference to, you know, starting from the point of we need to get rid of this uh, as a whole. How can we orient our actions towards doing that, towards accomplishing that goal? Um, and that's sort of what the project of abolition has kind of taken on. And, um, you know, this uh, note is just meant to sort of be one small piece in, in that project. Going back to the um, the premise of increasing access to banking, can you talk a little bit about how the premise of that proposed reform uh, is that a lot of incarcerated people are unbanked and don't have those connections to the banking system. Yeah, so that that certainly is one of the major motivations behind uh, you know increasing access to banking. Most of the research that I came across actually came out of the United Kingdom, where there's been, I think, a lot of efforts by some major banks over there to. Uh, to help individuals uh, establish bank accounts either while they're incarcerated or immediately after their release. Uh, because it, banking is, is just a necessity. I mean, uh, one of the, uh, you know, stories that I came across that I included in my note talks about, you know, a person who couldn't get a driver's license because they, they didn't have a bank account. They didn't have the necessary financial tools um, to sign up for this, you know, very basic service, what we would consider to be a very basic service. Um, but you know, that person still has to get to work. They still drove a car, but every time they do that, they're exposed to even more fees, you know, even more of a risk of incarceration. Uh, and so that just becomes a, a cyclical problem. Um, but again, you know, there is maybe some evidence to suggest that, that if we increase access to banking, you know, we can reduce recidivism rates, but you know, the alternative is to just not take away individuals' financial identities when we incarcerate them, you know, is to just allow them to access a bank account if they have one already, um, connect them with a bank that, uh, or as we'll get into in a moment, you know, a, a community development financial institution that is sort of caring for their interests. Uh, and, you know, I think the point that my note tries to make is that that is ultimately a more worthwhile goal than just trying to, you know, let Bank of America take over and, uh, you know, start running the show. Because uh, I don't think that that 
at the end of the day is is going to really do much to solve this problem. So the reformist approaches that you mention, uh, litigation, regulation, and increasing access to banking, are those reforms worth pursuing? So it's 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 a tricky question to answer sort of in the yes or no because you know as I said there is I think a lot of harm reduction that can happen as a result of uh, the efforts that are being made to, yeah, to to litigate, to regulate, to increase access. You know, I think one of the the key distinctions that that my note tries to tease out is is sort of how do we frame the activities that we think are worth pursuing? Uh, you know, in in the context of our overarching goal, right? There could be a number of you know, discrete actions that someone who's trying to reform the, uh, you know, the carceral system and someone who's trying to abolish it might agree on, right? You know, I think we can agree that, uh, you know, having less of these harmful activities is a good thing. But to the extent that, you know, trying to litigate our way out of this problem, trying to regulate our way out of this problem distracts us from the overall goal of getting rid of um, of the system entirely. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think it's not worth pursuing if that's going to be the result, right? Because, you know, to, to give another example of, um, in the context of, of prison telecoms, right. You know, the FCC stepped in and, uh, you know, capped the fees, uh, in a lot of, of institutions. And that was, I think, widely viewed as a win for, you know, advocates of reforming our, uh, system of incarceration. But, you know, you fast forward a couple of years and now you have, you know, some of the same problems, first of all. I mean, you you haven't solved the problem completely. But also, if you want to send, you know, a money transfer from, uh, you know, Western Union to specifically a company that uh, that operates prison telecoms, they charge a higher fee and they send some of that fee back to the prison operators. So we've just kicked the can sort of to a different point in the chain. We haven't gotten rid of the exploitation. We've just taken it out of the reach of regulation. Uh, and that's sort of, that. that's what the prison industrial complex does. I mean, it is incredibly powerful and it's devoted to its own self-interest. I mean, it's not just going to go quietly if all of a sudden we pass a law that says it can't do something. It's It's constantly searching for new avenues uh, through which it can exploit incarcerated individuals uh, for its own gain. And so if we if we keep trying to play, you know, play the game and, and treat this as if it's just a war of attrition, right? First of all, I'm not convinced that we're going to win because we're up against very powerful interests. And as we're, you know, going through the motions, people are, you know, actively being harmed. So instead of trying to, you know, just go back and forth and and try to find individual parts of, of the system that we think we can make better, we need to imagine what an alternative can look like. And, um, you know, the sooner we can start to articulate that and figure out what that can look like, I think the closer we are to making that a reality. So your note does articulate a concrete alternative, um, and that is relocating prison financial services to something called community development financial institutions. So first of all, what is a CDFI? A financial institution, whether that is a, a bank, credit union, 
you know, or even a, a venture capital fund that operates instead of, you know, with this pure profit driven mentality, um, you know, it operates explicitly for the benefit of communities that are historically underserved by the banking sector. Uh, and so, you know, what that can look like is, in many cases, having, you know, individuals from poor communities, individual from individuals from communities of color on the board, you know, making decisions at the core level, operating with an explicit nonprofit, uh, you know, function to try to invest in communities that have sort of been left behind by the banking sector. Uh, I think a good example of this is uh, called Shore Bank. It was uh, a project that existed in Chicago. Uh, that's sort of kind of, it laid the groundwork for, for the modern, um, CDFI. And, you know, at one point in time, it was investing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in black owned businesses in affordable housing. I mean, it, it was operating as we would think a, a traditional bank would, but instead of caring only about its bottom line, it, it actually tried to be a positive force within the community. Uh, and so, you know, the idea here is instead of seizing an individual's uh, financial identity when they're incarcerated, why not, you know, have an institution that is devoted to, you know, to their interests um, that the, you know, that an incarcerated person can remain in contact with, remain in control of their finances with, um, you know, throughout their, their incarceration, right? Um, and so it's, you know, <laughs> this is a, it's a tall ask, right? This is not a system that exists right now that we can, you know, turn to tomorrow and say, here you go, like, you, you're now in charge of this, right? This is something that would need to be developed over time. Uh, but the idea is that if we, you know, try to relocate financial identities to places where you know, they're going to actually be cared for even a little bit. Um, you know, we can try to empower individuals to really, you know, to, to exit, uh, a prison or a jail with, um, you know, all of the tools that they need to reintegrate and, uh, and flourish, uh, in, in our, you know, modern society. So your solution is to relocate financial services to these CDFIs uh, for the benefits that you just mentioned. Uh, but you also, your setup also involves giving each incarcerated person a checking account and a savings account with this CDFI provider. Why this setup? What are the benefits and how does this differ from the system as it currently exists apart from it being located in a CDFI? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the differences from the current system are probably the easiest to spot, right? The, this is not an account that is controlled by the institution. It's not controlled by the state. It's controlled by the individual. You know, they're given access to their money, uh, because it is theirs. Um, and I think there's a lot of, you know, really exciting ideas around, you know, safeguarding certain types of, uh, accounts from, you know, withdrawals for court fees or, um, you, you know, other uh, court imposed financial obligations so that, you know, individuals have a better chance when they're uh, released of, of, you know, successfully reintegrating. Um, but, you know, why, why the setup? Because it is, you know, I think a way to capture some of the benefits that, you know, increased banking access kind of alludes to without relying on, 
you know, the, the quote unquote traditional banking infrastructure, which has largely evolved to cater to individuals who are wealthy, uh, you know, to corporations, right? Because there's just more money to be had there. And so this is not only a way to, you know, to ensure that, that incarcerated individuals are, uh, you know, have their financial interests safeguarded and, uh, you know, that they have a, have their own financial identity, but it's also a way to, you know, increase the network of financial institutions that operate with the explicit, uh, you know, goal of uplifting historically underserved communities. So um, it's obviously going to take quite a bit of time, you know, to to create these institutions and to, um, you know, establish the framework that's necessary to recapture um, incarcerated individuals' financial identity, because this is not something that, uh, you know, a private prison operator is just going to sit by and and let happen. And I'm sure there will be all sorts of arguments about how this isn't feasible and, you know, how this is uh, opening the door for criminal activity. You know, I think these are the same tired answers that we've seen to, to any abolitionist project. Um, you know, I think if you look back through through history, it's 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 hard to see what abolition can look like when you're so deep within the the system, right? Uh, but it's important to you know to to set the bar high uh, and to intentionally do so, so that we have something that we can work towards. Um, because you know, even if we don't come all the way to, you know, getting this uh, implemented in, in every state and every jurisdiction, right? We have, uh, you know, a, a stepping stone that we can take towards, uh, you know, getting rid of the entirety of these institutions. And why is it important to push for such far-reaching change like this, despite the uphill battle and the, the significant obstacles that you've noted? Yeah, I mean, this this sort of is the, you know, this is the project of of prison abolition as a whole. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, Professor Angela Davis talks a little bit about the idea that we need to, you know, make space for partial abolitions, right? We can't necessarily get rid of the entirety of this system uh, in, in a day or in an hour or in a week or in a month or in a year. Um, this is something that's going to take an immense amount of time, but we can try to find ways to slowly reclaim the power that the carceral state has taken from incarcerated individuals by, you know, finding parts of the, uh, of the, the prison system that we can abolish, that we can get rid of. Uh, and prison finances is just one of them. It's not going to solve all of the problems. And, and in fact, you know, it is, so interrelated to some of the other operations within a prison that, you know, you would probably have to do a tremendous amount of work retooling the very functioning of a prison to make space for uh, a change like this, right? But if we make that demand, right, if we make the demand that, yes, we do need to do whatever it takes to get rid of of this, uh, you know, I think we set a framework that lets us make further demands that are in line with the ultimate goal of getting rid of the process entirely. You know, this is a big project um, and, you know, quite intentionally so. And, uh, you know, it's it's something that you just have to be willing to, um, you know, to put effort into knowing that it's going to be an uphill battle. Um, and yeah, this this is definitely not going to be easy, but it's it's worth doing. 
Great. Well, your note certainly provides a really good example of a concrete alternative to the prison financial system as it exists. Uh, Thank you so much for bringing attention to this topic and for joining our podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. And and also, you know, I think a lot of thanks are owed to all of the folks who sort of let this project happen. Um, I think especially my my partner, Tiffany, who has read countless drafts of this uh, paper over the, the months and, you know, Professor Merman um, for sort of creating a space to let this project uh, get started. But I think the biggest thank you also goes to, you know, the folks who are actually doing this work, right? I, I'm a law student. Um, I'm, I'm writing a note, you know, I am, uh, very much removed from the actual day-to-day work that's going on here. And so the, the folks who are agitating, um, who are, you know, making these demands, um, they deserve the credit, right? Not, not me. Um, and so, yeah, I hope everybody will, uh, you know, go and, and read more about this issue. There's a lot of groups that they can look into. I would highlight especially um, Critical Resistance and Worth Rises. They're doing some really great work in this area. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, just recognize that this is happening and, and see what you can do to make it stop. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of the California Law Review Podcast. If you would like to read Sean's note, you can find it in Volume 110, Issue 1 of the California Law Review at californialawreview.org. For updates on new episodes and articles, please follow us on Twitter. You can find a list of the editors who worked on this volume of the podcast in the show notes. If you are able to leave us a rating and review, we would greatly appreciate it. See you in the next episode.